Well, welcome to Trinity Church. Uh, my name is Dave. If you don't know me, I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, most often in, in uh, this time, uh, we work through uh, books of the Bible, just working through passage by passage as uh, we want to hear from God. We could come up with, you know, 10 ways to fix your life in 10 weeks, but well, let's be honest, it, it probably wouldn't fix your life, uh, and we're, we're not honestly even that uh, creative, but we know that through uh, God's word, through hearing what uh, God has to say, let him set the agenda that uh, he will uh, change our lives. So we are uh, studying through the life of uh, Jesus right now, uh, as recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And on, if you asked most people in America some familiarity with uh, Jesus, you know that they they know some stuff about him. They've uh, heard Sunday school lessons. Uh, they they know some things, but. If you press them a little farther, you'd get the impression that maybe he just kind of dropped out of the sky. Like, what? Why is he here? What did he come to do? You know, what relation does all these stories in the Old Testament, you know, Daniel's and the lions, then, and all these other uh, things you teach kids? Like, well, what? What in the world does that have to do? Uh, with Jesus. It'd be like he just dropped out of the sky with almost no uh, context. Uh, you know, these are Old Testament's good stories to teach uh, kids, but um, you know, what relevance does it have to, to my life, to your lives? Uh, and, and I'm not trying to pick a fight with um, anyone, especially not Linda back there. I don't want to pick a fight with her. Uh, but uh, you probably have seen or maybe grew up with these uh, Bibles and New Testament and Psalms. And you know, I'm saying I'm glad to have the, the Word of God in whatever form, understanding that you know, it's a relatively recent uh, novelty to have the entirety of uh, the Scriptures you know, right, right in front of me in an app, uh, um, in a hard copy. But um, how much, if, if I just have the New Testament and Psalms and that's the only place I'm uh, getting information about Jesus, uh, how am I going to understand the life of Jesus? What has he come for? Well, what, 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 has he, what is he doing? If I jettison the Old Testament, my, my context for understanding a Jesus almost entirely disappears. Actually, that's why we support missionaries like uh, Derek and uh, Tori Schusler, uh, who are doing uh, really good work in a missionary context of, through Bible storytelling. So th this is people you know, with almost no familiarity uh, to the Bible, to the life of Jesus. And although you'd be tempted to, in the first you know, five minutes, I want to get to Jesus, want the person to express faith and repentance and you know, become a Christian. Instead, working through, it, it takes a little longer, it, it, it takes time, but working through uh, the entire story of the Bible 
And, and then when they get to seeing Jesus, that aha moment of, well, what, that's why he's here. That's what he's, he's uh, come to do. That's the Jesus I need to have faith in. It's not just the Jesus to add to other gods or other priorities uh, in my life. And, and yes, there are uh, difficult parts of the Old Testament and the connections to the life of Jesus aren't as simple as, you know, a hundred prophecies, just like check boxes to like, yep, he got that one, he got that one. Uh, it's, it's not that easy, but the, the two-thirds of your Bible that comes before we come to the life of Jesus as recorded in the, the Gospels is vitally important, as we're going to see today, to understanding uh, who Jesus is and how he fulfills that Old Testament expectation. So in the last few weeks, we, we finished the birth and early life narratives uh, concerning Jesus. We heard about uh, John the Baptist and his uh, preparatory ministry uh, for uh, that of Jesus, and, and then uh, had the baptism of Jesus by John uh, last week. Uh, DJ uh, proclaimed to us the meaning of this baptism, uh, not uh, symbolizing repentance like it did for others of those uh, coming to John, uh, but revealing the purity of Jesus, that he is set apart. And, and Matthew carefully selected uh, that narrative to help his readers understand uh, who Jesus is before he's going to launch into his uh, first uh, discourse, first of five discourses in the uh, Gospel of Matthew, uh, starting with uh, chapter 5. And, and this passage we come to today, Matthew 4, uh, continues the story. If you, if you want to understand uh, who Jesus is, what he's come to do, uh, that this is for us. This is you know, far more important than just a good moral lesson for us. It's commonly referred to as the temptation of Jesus. And, and honestly, I, I find this to be one of the uh, most appealing uh, stories in the Gospels. Why? Well, well first of all, it's uh, something we can all relate to, a temptation. It's part of the universal human experience. And uh, Jesus does something that we're not uh, all that good at. He resists temptation. Uh, sometimes our strategy for temptation is like my strategy for eliminating the temptation of Oreos. If I just eat them all right away, the temptation disappears. It, it's a great strategy for Oreos. I, I highly recommend it. Might get a stomachache, but I still highly recommend it. Not the greatest strategy for dealing with sin. And the crazy part about this uh, temptation uh, narrative is that you don't just have uh, another person doing the tempting. You have the devil, Satan, up uh, close and personal. So well, let's uh, launch into uh, Matthew 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's uh, one in the seat back uh, in front of you. And uh, also, if you didn't get a listening guide, you can, you can lift your hand has a little place to take uh, notes, and someone from the back uh, will get, uh, get you one of those. Matthew uh, chapter 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. 
And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain, and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Pray with me. Father God, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. I pray that we would learn from it, that we would be changed by it. Help uh, this uh, story we've heard many times before to help us to hear it afresh, uh, that we would understand and love Jesus better through our time here this morning. We pray this in his glorious name. Amen. So uh, Matthew starts off here, verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Matthew starts by indicating that the Holy Spirit is the one who leads Jesus into the wilderness. The devil is the agent of this uh, testing. Your your Bible may say uh, tempted, might even have the uh, title, the temptation of Jesus, but, but this first, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted, or, or the word can be translated, uh, tested. Uh, certainly the devil's intention is to get uh, Jesus to do wrong, but uh, the Holy Spirit is the one who leads him. It's ultimately for his uh, testing. God is the one who initiates this testing. And in the world we live, uh, supernatural characters are often dismissed. But what we see in this story here that the devil is seen to be a person. He is not a friendly one, not on Jesus's team, but he is a very real and powerful foe who hates Jesus. He's a crafty deceiver, as he's been from the beginning. He is uh, threatened by the arrival of Jesus the Messiah. But, but see how Matthew uh, sets this account up to indicate that the devil is the, not the one who's in full control. He's a pawn in the story, though he would certainly ob- object to that. The devil does what he wants to, but ultimately he's uh, serving God's purpose, that the Holy Spirit is the one who leads Jesus in the wilderness for this testing. And then we read that Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Now that seems like a long time. 
Wouldn't you admit, admit that with me? Eh, that, that, that's quite a while. And, and not to burst your bubble, but this isn't the first uh, fasting for uh, 40 days, 40 nights in the Bible. Uh, Elijah did it in his journey to Horeb. Uh, Moses did it when receiving the Ten Commandments. It, it's about as long as a human could go without uh, permanently damaging one's body. But, but why fast? Well, well, fasting is a way to focus intently on prayer, on relationship with God. It, it not only frees up time for that, time that would be spent eating, it, it reminds one that you need God even more than physical sustenance. And Jesus was hungry, it says here. He was famished. Being fully human, it wasn't like this was a super easy thing, you know, just to resist food. He experienced those uh, hunger pangs just like you and I would. But he fasts here for 40 days, and not, not just one meal, 40 days. And when the devil encounters Jesus, he is at his physical weakest, probably his weakest point until we get to, uh, physically, until we get to the passion uh, narrative at the end of uh, the gospel. But at the same time, he is spiritually strengthened, having s- devoted himself for 40 days, 40 nights, to communion with God, to prayer to his Father. And, and this isn't the only time Jesus will a spar with the, the devil. Actually, the entirety of his life and his ministry is battle with Satan. And we're going to have to wait to the end of the book uh, to see the, the knockout blow uh, Jesus gives to Satan uh, through the cross and resurrection and, and sends his followers out to uh, achieve this uh, worldwide dominion. But uh, Matthew presents this as a specific examination of Jesus' relationship uh, with the Father. See, see how the, the first two uh, temptations begin. If you are the Son of God, the devil asks. Again, if you are the Son of God. Jesus was just proclaimed, as we heard last week in his baptism, uh, to be... Uh, Father has spoken over him, my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And now what happens? That that relationship is put to the test. At the perfect time when Jesus is physically weakest, but spiritually strengthened, having spent 40 days uh, in prayer and fasting. Uh, so what, what do we learn from this testing of uh, Jesus in the wilderness. So this is going to be one of my weirdest sermon structures ever. I promise next time I'll just have three points in a poem. But uh, we're, we're going to circle around the story twice. Uh, think of it as a um, Chicago-style deep dish pizza. So, so first we're going we're to do this. We're going to look at the surface. So in a Chicago-style deep dish pizza Uh, That's the sauce. We're first going to take a look at that. And then we're going to circle around it again in deep dish pizza. The the really good stuff, the 
the toppings, the meat, isn't on top. It's, it's underneath, uh, underneath the surface, underneath the sauce. So we're going to circle around this, uh, this story twice as we want to find, we're going to find important and valuable uh, truth, and it's only going to get deeper and richer uh, as we go. So, so to start off, uh, we, we can't miss this, that Jesus is our example for doing battle with the devil. We can't miss the warfare going on here. It's Satan versus Jesus, the Son of God. And Jesus is our example for doing battle with the devil. Why? Well, first of all, he, he recognizes that this is spiritual warfare. You might say, well, duh. I mean, you just told me that Satan is right there in front of him. Of course, it's a spiritual warfare. Well, well sure, but see how Jesus responds. He understands it's, it's more than what might meet the eye. It's more than what is physically in front of him. If, if he did not understand this was spiritual warfare, he w- would have responded, you know, why not just turn this rock into a piece of bread? Sure, I can jump down and be saved by the angels. But Jesus understands it's not just a physical battle going on here. It's a spiritual war with Satan. And sometimes we don't even get past uh, this one in temptation. You know, we, we think the issue is between you know, me and my beer, me and the computer, uh, me and my coworkers, or me and my friends. And, and we don't think for a moment that the, there's a spiritual war going on for our souls. We ignore the fact that uh, Satan uh, and his demons uh, hate Jesus and hate those who follow Jesus and and will spare no expense uh, or effort to trip them up. So, uh, how are you? A question for you How would you face this week if you saw? that you are going through spiritual warfare? How, how would you approach it differently if you assumed not just that everything is, is as what meets the eye, but there is actual spiritual warfare going on for your soul? W- would you approach it differently? It's not just typing emails, submitting reports, uh, changing diapers, but spiritual warfare is going on um, for you so, and for that of others around you, for those in your community group, for uh, your neighbors. And, and that brings us uh, to the second reason Jesus is our example for doing battle with the devil. Uh, we see here that he prepares spiritually. Uh, he fasts with the implication he's devoting himself to prayer, to that relationship with his father. The devil comes to him and comes after him in vulnerable areas. 
starting with the turning of stones into bread. He was hungry. That was a very appealing temptation uh, to him. And uh, ultimately, all these temptations surround this newly revealed relationship uh, with the Father. You, you mentioned fasting today in most churches, especially in Baptist churches, let, let me add. And everyone thinks, did he just say fellowshipping? Because I'm a lot more comfortable with fellowshipping than, than uh, fasting. Nope, nope, this is fasting. It's, it's going without food for a period of time. A lot different than a Baptist potluck, I promise you. And, and at this point, uh, Christians tend to have two uh, mistaken reactions. It's either, oops, I kind of forgot about that. Like, uh, that's just a spiritual discipline. I, I, even, I forgot it was even a spiritual discipline. I, I need to just buckle down, do it, you know, add it. You know, I, I just need to find, find a way to do it. Or, or the opposite side um, opposite reaction is to you know justify excuse like I, I can't do it I'm it, as if in Jesus's day that there weren't exceptions for it, it was well established in uh, the first century rabbinical tradition that uh, you know there were exceptions for you know those who were uh, pregnant uh, nursing mothers kids uh, those who um, had medical conditions. But, but here's the point. The fasting is meant to be done to focus on a prayer and communion with God. It's not meant to just check off a box as if it's a spiritual discipline. I just, I, you know, I just need to check off that box that I've done. It's of no value to you if you just do it to say you, you've accomplished it. It's it's meant for the purpose of prayer, of further, furthering one's relationship uh, with the Father, just as Jesus did it. So, so pray, read God's word fast, be prepared for a spiritual war, for war with the devil. And, and that leads us uh, to another reason. Jesus is our example for doing battle with the devil. It will, he combats the devil with Scripture. Uh, this is probably one of the first things when, when you re- read this story or remember it that you think of. You know, somebody told you to memorize the Bible because when you, you're tempted, you want to be able to have Bible verses. So you what God said, not just what you think to combat that temptation to combat, combat the devil. And, and, and though that's not the only thing that's going on here in this story, uh, we would be negligent to set it aside as invalid. Jesus does combat the devil with Scripture. And script, might I add, Scripture rightfully interpreted. Uh, Satan knows his Old Testament uh, too and, and tries to hijack Psalm 91 for his own purposes. But Jesus not only knows Scripture, he knows uh, how to properly interpret it. He understands its meaning as part of God's story. And he uses it to 
combat these uh, tests, these temptations hurled at him by the devil. And and he provides a a good example uh, for us in, in responding to temptation. It requires both a knowing and memorizing uh, God's word, and also understanding it, and um, no understanding the proper use of it. Unfortunately, there's no real way to hack this, quote unquote. That there's no, I give me an hour, I can memorize, you know, ten verses that are general enough to apply to all temptations, and bam. I'm good. It it requires a whole lot more than just a little bit of rote memory. There's a no 12-week class that teaches you this. This is the Christian life of uh, studying God's Word, memorizing it, uh, prayer, being part of a church that preaches and teaches God's Word, uh, doing life together, studying God's Word with other uh, Christians. So, so question for you, are, are you prepared to combat the devil's tests like Jesus was? Did you know what God has said in his word? Are you actively reading, studying, memorizing it to be prepared when temptation uh, comes? Do you have br- Christian brothers and sisters surrounding you to provide en- encouragement, spiritual uh, wisdom from God's word when you're going through a tough spiritual test. And lastly, Jesus is our example for doing spiritual battle uh, with the devil as he relies on the power of the Spirit and wins. That the Spirit is the one who directs Jesus into the wilderness for this time of fasting and then testing. Jesus doesn't appear powerless to do what the devil tries to get him to do, but he resists the temptations. And look who comes to his aid after this time of testing by Satan. Angels, God's messengers. And uh, this leads us into uh, the the nature of Jesus. So we could talk about this for the rest of our time. We're, We're not going to. But... Uh, Jesus isn't doing battle with Satan, resisting this temptation, just out of his nature being 100% being fully God and unable to sin. He, he is 100% fully God, as we, we read in, and recited in the creed earlier. Uh, and he is also 100% fully human, subject to our weaknesses, as the Hebrew says, he was tempted just as we are, yet without a sin. And, and Christians sometimes chalk this up to, well, if Jesus is 100% God, he uh, couldn't sin. A- a- and that is, is true, is valid. But uh, we see here that he lives his earthly life, and we're, we're going to see more of this as, as we go through this gospel. He lives his earthly life out of the power of, of the Spirit. He is not relying on his, uh, his godhood 
to resist temptation, but is relying on the, the power of the Spirit to resist what the devil is trying to get him to do. Uh, all, all illustrations break down at some point. Uh, that's the nature of illustrations. Uh, but the best one I've heard is, is that of uh, Bruce Ware's. Uh, th- think, think of a swimmer trying to cross a large body of water, say the Atlantic. And he's uh, swimming. He or she is sw- uh, obviously wants to swim the whole way, but has a boat there to uh, save the swimmer if uh, he or she would break down, not be able to make it, make sure the person doesn't die in in the process. But but what does the swimmer want to do? Does the swimmer want to be rescued by the boat? Absolutely not. The swimmer wants to make it to the other side, wants nothing to do with uh, that boat because to be rescued by the boat would be to not succeed in swimming to the other uh, side. And, and likewise, Jesus, 100% God, 100% man, but he lives his life out of the power of the Spirit, resisting temptation, choosing again and again to obey the Father and resist the temptation of uh, the devil. And, and there's good news for us concerning Jesus' reliance on the power of the Spirit because uh, he sent his Spirit to live inside his followers. If you are a Christian here today, you have the Spirit, Jesus' Spirit, this Holy Spirit living inside of you. Regardless how you feel, you are not powerless to resist temptation. Your power isn't in your own ability, it's in the Spirit who is inside of you and relying on His strength to say no to temptation and yes uh, to God. It's the power of the Spirit in you. All right, now, not now so, we, so we went through the, the surface layer and through the sauce of the pizza. Let's, let's circle around again and let's uh, dig a little deeper. Uh, What else do we learn through the testing of Jesus uh, in the wilderness? You you might have uh, missed this at first, but uh, Jesus retraces the steps in the wilderness and succeeds where ancient Israel failed. Uh, See how Matthew highlights the correspondences, even in just the setting, between the experience of Jesus and that of the people of Israel in the Exodus. Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, just like ancient Israel. Jesus fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, which immediately to the uh, original readers, hearers of this, they would recall the 40 years of hunger in the wilderness, the Exodus from Egypt. And and then... Where does Jesus quote when he responds to the test of the devil? He quotes uh, three times from Deuteronomy, uh, which is a collection of final sermons 
uh, of Moses to the people of Israel. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8 and then uh, twice from Deuteronomy 6. Why is that? Has he just been doing his devos in Deuteronomy? That's all he uh, could remember? Uh, No, something more profound is going on here. Jesus is retracing the steps of ancient Israel in the Exodus, yet he succeeds where they failed. Look again at the the first uh, testing. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So the tempter, the devil, tries to get Jesus to satisfy his hunger his own way by turning stones into bread. And Jesus certainly could have done this through his miraculous power. And there was nothing inherently wrong with the action of satisfying hunger, turning stones into bread. However, it would jeopardize his mission, the mission his father had sent him on. He would not learn the lesson of utter dependence on the Father, and his ministry would not be one of privation for the sake of the kingdom. A concern for his own personal comfort, satisfying it by his own means and his own timing, would undercut this mission he was sent on. So how does he respond? Well, he responds in the words of Deuteronomy 8. Uh, Let me give you a little context for this. Deuteronomy 8 Starting with verse 1, Moses writes, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger, 40 years of hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Why did God provide his people with manna in their 40-year journey from exile in Egypt to the promised land? Couldn't he have used a less miraculous way for them to get food? Sure, absolutely he could have. But that would have defeated the point. The point of this was that they were to learn dependence on God. And and what a better way to learn it than not producing, not securing one's own food. Instead, what what did they have to do? Well, they, they just had to go outside and pick it up in the morning. Manna literally means 
what is it? Which also would be an appropriate word, just a side note here. If you're ever at a potluck and Aunt Sally makes something that uh, seems awfully questionable, calling it manna is a very appropriate compliment uh, slash you know, question. Well, what, what is it? But uh, manna, anyhow. And they would gather this manna every morning, but they could only gather what they needed as what they didn't eat that day, uh, unless the Sabbath was the next day, kind of like Chick-fil-A. It's not open on... Uh, they could, uh, the day before the Sabbath, they could gather uh, double to provide for that day and the Sabbath. But whatever they didn't eat, didn't use, would spoil. And this forced them to depend every single day on their God for their sustenance. If God didn't provide, they weren't eating that day. They, they, couldn't, they, they couldn't stock up for the next day. They couldn't stock up for, for the week. They, they, there was no backup plan. If God didn't come through, provide the manna, they didn't have anything to eat. And the point of that is to learn the lesson to trust God for their daily sustenance, to trust God for the simplest of needs, the need to eat. But how, how did that go for them? Well, well, they murmured concerning the manna. They grumbled when they lacked water, thinking God would not take care of them. When they came to the edge of the promised land, did they trust the God that had miraculously provided for them every single day, day after day after day in this 40-year journey? No, that they recoiled in fear. But Jesus, retracing their steps, what does he do? He fully trusts the Father for his sustenance. It's been 40 days, it's been 40 nights, but he knows that the God who spoke this world into existence can sustain him if only by his word. Jesus has no need to go rogue to try to secure his own food, to meet his own comfort. He trusts his Father that his Father will sustain him. He succeeds where ancient Israel failed. And let's take a break here. Uh, how, how are you doing? How am I doing at trusting God to meet your physical needs? That does dependence on the Father for the necessities of life even cross your mind on a, a daily basis? Let's remind ourselves of that this week and, and not be fooled by the ways we're insulated from you know, physical trial. Think insurance, government programs. Uh, God is more than capable of making us in need if he so desires. And, and we need dependence on him uh, for our physical needs. 
Jesus succeeds here where ancient Israel failed. Not to be dissuaded, the devil brings Jesus to a higher location and the temptation gets even a little bit more explicit. Second testing, verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So the devil tries to get Jesus to throw himself down uh, from the temple and command his angels to protect him. Jesus is on a projecting part main temple building, which boasted a height of probably somewhere in the 180 foot range. So to think top of a 18 story building, that's fairly high. Would this have brought instant recognition to Jesus as the Messiah? It, it sure would have. But, but that's not where the focus goes in this account. What does the devil do to bolster the legitimacy of this temptation? Well, he quotes scripture. I've already said he misuses Psalm 91. But, but look what it says in, in Psalm 91. Because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge, no evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder. The young lion and the serpent you will trample underfoot. This psalm concerns God's protection for those who love him. And Jesus certainly satisfies that criteria. So it appears to be an airtight claim to God's protection over Jesus. This is a reasonably convincing argument uh, from scripture. Uh, f- f- the, the devil has argument, uh, this is far more convincing than that of uh, many uh, prosperity gospel preachers in our day, but the devil is dead wrong. How does Jesus respond? Jesus responds that this would be to put God to the test. The devil is trying to create an artificial circumstance and force God's hand. But this father-son relationship requires absolute trust in the father that the father would supply everything Jesus needs. There's no need to put him to the test. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, which reads, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. So, so what did the people of Israel do at Massa? Which very appropriately means testing. Well, they questioned 
God's presence by saying, is the Lord really among us or not? Because they didn't have water. They, they were about to stone Moses, the messenger of God. They were trying to force God's hand instead of humbly obeying and trusting God as they followed. They were demanding water to prove God's presence. But God had already done that. God had proved his presence. He had brought them out of Egypt. He had led them all the way. They needed no test to prove God's presence. And here in the new Exodus, Jesus, the new Israel, refuses to put the Father to the test. He trusts in the Father's presence, needing no extra proof through a contrived situation. He knows the Father is with him. He knows the promises of Psalm 91 are true for him. And he trusts his Father instead of putting him to the test. Uh, people still wrongfully put God to the test today, uh, creating a situation that if, if God doesn't come through for them, then, then uh, they've proved that he doesn't care for them. If you might have heard, you might, might even uh, think sometimes this way. For example, if God doesn't give me a boyfriend, give me a girlfriend, I know he doesn't love me. Well, not, 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 not true. Maybe he's making you into the type of person he w- wants you to be and knows better than you do what you need right now. Or if God doesn't give me a promotion, I, I know he's not watching out for me. Well, maybe he's watching out for me and he's watching out for me by not giving me what I think I want, I think I, I need. He's well, probably watching out for all of my life. He is watching out for all of my life. If you might ask, if God heals this person physically, well, then I'll trust him. Then I'll become a Christian. Can, can God heal people? Absolutely. We see that all throughout the, the Bible, throughout the Gospels in particular. We see that happen in our world today. Does he always choose to do so? No. Trust God regardless of whether or not that person gets healed or not. God ultimately knows best. And let's continue on. We see Satan, here is the name now used for the devil, takes Jesus to an even higher location. And the temptation gets even more explicit. Verse 8, the third testing. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Looking out from the mountain, the view reminds us of Moses' view of the promised land from Mount Nebo. 
the, the devil's dominion over all the world here is implied. And it's the exact reason Jesus has come. He has come to overtake this dominion. He has come to challenge the devil's dominion. However, he could avoid this war with the devil, but by teaming up with him is what Satan is offering Jesus here. I know it sounds like an NBA offseason here, a little bit, uh, but immediate gratification, no cross, no battle, because his battle with the devil isn't just here in this passage. This is throughout the entire life and ministry. Every at every single turn, as we're going to see in this gospel, the devil is battling against Jesus. The devil is opposing him. And the devil wants Jesus to worship him here. And in every attack, the devil musters throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. But how does Jesus respond? Well, he quotes Deuteronomy 6 again. Deuteronomy 6, verse 10. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. And you shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. That the people of Israel were well aware of the command to worship God alone. That this is the first uh, of the Ten Commandments. There is nothing more central to their faith. They were to be unlike all the other pagan nations around them, declaring their allegiance to the one true God and Him only. And we'll see throughout the Old Testament that nothing infuriates the Lord more than when his people choose other gods over him. Just one example. Think the golden calf incident of the Exodus generation. And as the people were entering this promised land, they were reminded of this exclusive loyalty to the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, that God had taken the initiative. God had brought them to this land. He had promised to conquer it for them. He was giving them cities they didn't build, houses, cisterns, vineyards, olive trees, and more. But he knows the temptation would be to forget this God who had showered all the blessings upon them. And guess what? That's exactly 
the trap they fell into over and over again. Again and again, renouncing this exclusive loyalty to the one true God for personal comfort, for political gain, and more. But, but what does Jesus do as he retraces their steps? He chooses to worship the one true God and serve him only. No shortcuts, no compromises for the sake of comfort. Full obedience to the Father, continuing on this path to the cross. And and this should change us. This should not leave us at the, the same place we were before reading, before studying this passage. It, it should change how we worship Jesus. Are, are you in awe of Jesus today? Uh, just in studying this week, in studying this passage, uh, I know I was stirred to praise Jesus more and more, more passionately from seeing what he has accomplished here in this passage. But, but it should also change how we read our Bibles. Understanding the, the Old Testament should lead to greater love for Jesus, greater appreciation uh, for his work. Uh, th- though we're going to be going through the Gospel of Matthew for a while, d- don't forget to read the Old Testament, to study the Old Testament, this will provide invaluable context to understanding what Jesus has come to do, who Jesus is. It shouldn't distract us. It, it, it can, we can easily get bogged down in certain Old Testament passages, but ultimately it should energize our worship for Jesus more and more. We should love him more from reading the Old Testament as it leads up to Jesus. And how else should this change us? It should change how we live. Stories are meant to be told so you identify with a character or characters in the story. And though Matthew certainly tells this story in a way that we are cheering for Jesus, cheering against the devil, and we're, we're confident he's going to win this fight. We don't identify with him all that well. We're, we're not too good at fasting. We're, we don't naturally knock out the devil. We are actually a lot more like ancient Israel. We are, we're a lot more like God's people in the Old Testament than we often care to admit. We, we fail to rely on God for our provision. We wrongly put God to the test. We worship other gods, gods like money, success, our own personal comfort, instead of reserving our exclusive loyalty to the one true God. And you've, you've come away with, from this passage with the wrong message if you think you just need to buckle down and I just need to pray 
fast. I need to actually memorize uh, some of God's words so that I can beat up the devil. You know, maybe get a punching bag in my bedroom, write the devil on it, uh, practice beating up the devil, practice resisting a temptation. The, the message here isn't to try to be Jesus, it's to trust in the Jesus who takes us on this new exodus. Faith in his perfect obedience on my behalf. His, as we'll see at the end of this gospel, his death for his followers and his resurrection in victory over Satan, sin, and death. And then to be changed by him, looking more and more like him as we have his spirit, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us. Take this time. Let's quiet ourselves before the Lord. If the spirit is tugging on you, don't resist his work. If you are not a Christian and you see Jesus as attractive, that you have not seen him before, you, you see your sin as repulsive, do not resist the Spirit's work. Re- repent and believe. It's, it's making a 180 degree turn. I'm currently worshiping myself, going this direction. And now I turn and worship Jesus and him only. If you are a Christian here, well, let's celebrate Jesus. This is a Jesus worth telling others about. He's worth singing out loud. He's worth raising our hands in worship. Let's love him more and be motivated to a life out of this son-daughter-of-God relationship he has called us into, battling against the evil one, battling against temptation through uh, the power of the Spirit. Pray with me. Father God, we, we thank you for Jesus. We confess that we aren't the ones who initiated this new exodus. We are a lot like ancient Israel. We often fail to trust you. We often put you to the test. We often choose to worship other things, worship other gods, worship ourselves over you and you alone. Well, we thank you for Jesus that he did perfectly obey you on our behalf. He perfectly followed you, submitted to you, resisted the temptations of the devil. And help us to be changed by him, to look more and more like him through the work of your spirit inside of us. 
We pray this all in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.